This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm excited to introduce you to a very dear friend of mine. Pam is a survivor of domestic violence and so much more. She's one of the kindest, funniest, most creative, and strongest people I know. Today, however, she's here to tell us about her story, what happened, how she was manipulated, groomed, and tricked into staying. She's going to point out red flags along the way and show us how her awareness grew. We're going to find out what made her decide to leave, and we'll get to hear the story of her dangerous and powerful escape. Our deepest hope is that by sharing her story, we can reach others who might be in a similarly dangerous and scary situation. Better yet, with prevention always in mind, that we can reach people who are right at the beginning of what could turn into an abusive relationship. And maybe by hearing the red flags, and maybe by identifying with Pam's story, they can get out now. You can get out now, early, before it turns life-threatening. The amount of power, clarity, and strength of all of this is blowing me away. Let's get right to it. Pam, welcome. Oh my gosh, thank you. It's so great to have you here with me. Thank you in advance for being here and for sharing your story. In your intro, I mentioned that you're one of the strongest people I know, but I'd like to add that you're also one of the bravest, and I know a lot of strong and brave people. Oh my gosh, thank you. <laughs> so I love you. Let's just dig in. Um, can you tell us, just tell us about the beginning of your relationship? What was it like? How did it feel? What, what was going on? When it started, I'd just been through a series of painful breakups with um, a few men who were kind of workaholics and not very emotionally available. Um, at the time, I was working at a company that was um, kind of going under and my friend introduced me to this guy who had his own business and um, he started sending me jobs and I was super excited. Um, and pretty soon he became my main source of income and I started working for him and his friends. He worked really hard, um, but then he made it really clear very soon that he was really interested in dating and he just showered me with attention. That felt amazing. His enthusiasm for spending time together 
felt so different because um, he was so romantic and adventurous and he was just showering me with um, really expensive meals, like just taking me to those places where it's like a hundred bucks a plate, um, buying me clothes and maybe they didn't fit. So I would take them back and realize they were like $200 for a pair of jeans, which was crazy. Um, he was getting me a lot of jewelry and kind of jet setting me around on really fancy trips. Uh, I felt really cherished. Um, also, he loved to cook and entertain, so we were often hosting gatherings, which was super fun for me. It felt really like um, I was becoming a part of community. Right. You felt like enveloped in this overwhelming like love bubble mm -hmm. kind of love bombing I think you mentioned to me exactly that's when a person will take interest in everything that you love or need and just shower you with that thing whatever it is that's a strategy folks yeah it works yeah <laughs> it worked right. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want to feel cherished and loved and adored and all those things? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's human nature, right? <laughs> to to be feeling. just to respond to that. Mm -hmm. So knowing what you know now, what red flags did you see or do you see now that as you're looking back, like what are some of the things that you're like, oh, well, this is a strategy and that's a strategy or this felt mm -hmm. weird or yeah, so I think the thing, looking back, that was just so in my face that I wasn't aware of at the time because I had not, I didn't know about red flags, really. I was pretty naive. I um, came from a family where we were at the center of a community and we were always taking care of other people. Um, and so I just had a feeling like everybody's good at the core. People want to be great and do their best was my belief at the time. So um, my first big flag looking back was just a really fast romantic involvement. Um, he basically told me that he was planning on us getting married on our second date, which scared the heck out of me. I was like, oh, that's so awkward. Right. So that was giving you a feeling like there's, hmm, gave you a little pause. Oh, yeah. It, it made me uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And the other big thing was when he wasn't working, he was always around. I could not shake him. Um it was just, he would just be in my space all the time or, you know, want want to do something exciting, which I did like. But one, story, one thing that happened was I uh, had a day where I just wanted to be alone. I'd kind of had enough. I needed a little space and he would not leave me alone. He wouldn't take a hint. And um, he's, he was like, well, let's, let's go see a movie downtown. And so I kind of it's like, okay, let's go. So we walk to the light rail and the train pulls up and there are tons of people getting off and getting on. And I got on and found us a seat and look back and realize that the door had kind of shut in his face and um, the train was moving to the next stop. And so I was watching out the window and he ran, he ran next to the train 
all the way to the next stop and everybody was watching. And when the train arrived to the next stop and he got on, the whole train cheered. Um, Which just, I was just like, oh, excited to have maybe been getting a moment away from him. Drats. (laughs) So (laughs) awkward. So wait, I want to stop you here because the the two things that you just mentioned are things that we've discussed on this um on this podcast before when looking at characteristics of abusive people, which which seem almost um what's the word like not abusive? Right. Smothering. Yeah. It's like the like in the in the first instance, it's like really quick, really intense relationships. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a red flag. I mean, clearly it's a red flag because you were feeling it was a red flag, but Mm -hmm. it's a typical um, grooming technique or a typical strategy of an abusive person, just like this one, um, this like overwhelming almost possessiveness and like you said smothering Mm -hmm. which is another strategy it felt like he wanted to spend all the time with me to kind of crowd out any other opportunities for hanging out with other people that might come my way right right because if he's with you was it a way, like, was he also isolating you at the same time from other people that you loved, like your family or your friends? Kind of. He would go to events with my friends. Um, and a lot of my friends were like, who's this guy? Uh, you know, they didn't like him. And I, I couldn't see why they didn't like him at the time. And I think he sensed that and he started isolating me a little bit from my friends. And until we were mostly hanging out with people he knew in his crowd, he had a lot of avid supporters. Right. Another red flag. And what Mm -hmm. else, what other red flags were there? Um, He had the strongest sex drive I've ever seen in a person. I mean, like five times a day, probably, which is a lot. Um, That was pretty exciting at first, but then He soon started pressuring me to have sex without condoms. And at the time, I wasn't able to do birth control because it makes me really, really sick, the hormonal stuff. Um, And I really, I really didn't want to have kids, so I wouldn't agree to it without condoms. And this is just a, just another red flag that we just talked about in the, that, the episode of domestic violence part two, which is controlling your controlling someone's use of birth control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I he would do anything he could to try to, like, sneak in sex without condoms. Um, I was often waking up to him having unprotected sex with me. Um, and it was really, it was really weird because I'm a light sleeper. And I don't even know how he was able to start without me waking up. Um, it kind of felt like I was being drugged, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Well, that might have been happening, right? Mm-hmm, probably. Um, and the other thing is, he when I asked him to take accountability for that and kind of confronted him, he'd say, oh, it must have just been sleep sex, like he was sleepwalking. Um, you know, he didn't mean to do it. And, you know, it was a big mistake. 
Right. So he was minimizing your feelings, your no, your experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's another, all of these things are red flags. Yeah. So much. Mm-hmm. Um, so what about like, so it sounds like there was quite a honeymoon period, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty typical as well. This time when things are going really great and everyone's like lovey dovey, but mm-hmm. what are some other things that happened along the way? Like, what are some things that you felt and what did you tell yourself when you felt them, you know, things that might've been red flags or just anything along the way? Hmm. Well, the, just something that happened immediately that gave me pause was I became pregnant. Surprise, surprise, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um. That was not cool. I asked him to pee for an abortion and basically ended the relationship. I didn't. I didn't trust him anymore. I didn't. I just felt like he wasn't respecting my boundaries at all. Um, so the friend who introduced us took me to the clinic and she took care of me when I had my abortion and came home with me and we watched movies together and she was just right there for me. And on the same day I was having this procedure, he just happened to be on a trip that we have been planning to take together in the Caribbean with his ex-girlfriend Wait, what? Yeah, I know. Strictly platonic, of course. Okay, so wait. So you're having this procedure Mm -hmm. and he's... Okay. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) for real. Okay, oh my God. All right, so then you two were planning on a trip in the Caribbean, but Mm -hmm. so sad, so sorry, you've got to get this... Mm-hmm. procedure and go through all the pain of that and yeah. you know it's never something anybody wants to do so he goes off to the Caribbean with his ex-girlfriend yes wow okay got it <laughs> that was intense but <laughs> but wow. I was thinking did you, yeah. did you believe him that it was strictly platonic like did you you probably wanted to believe him you're like super vulnerable yeah, I mean, honestly, I kind of didn't care because I was I was feeling like this is done. Do whatever you want, dude. Right, because you had just ended the relationship. Yeah, in my mind. Yeah, in your mind. yeah. <laughs> got it. So he comes back and he starts reaching out all the time like we were still dating and nothing had happened. And I told myself, wow, he must really care for me if he's showing this so much concern and interest and also I needed money (laughs) and he had plenty of gigs for me. So we started working together again and we started dating again. And and this is another, like one of those red flags that we have talked about on this podcast, which is this financial control. So as you mentioned, he Mm -hmm. was responsible for a lot of your work yeah. And your income. Yeah, big time. That's that's a red flag. And it was really good money. Like mm-hmm. the day rate was crazy to me. And I yeah. was really happy to have that opportunity. Well, of course. Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean it all it all makes sense. And what are some other things that happen? Like what are you know, as you tell your story, what other things 
came up for you? How did you handle what was going on? Mm-hmm. We were talking about the pregnancy and I made it so clear. I did not want to get pregnant again. And he suggested we go to do a vasectomy consultation together. And um, so we went to Planned Parenthood together and um, learned all about it and what it would involve. And I wasn't, honestly, I wasn't feeling super great about our relationship. I was kind of feeling pretty hesitant and weird about it. And I I felt like I was going to dump him soon. So I didn't want to destroy any of his future partner's ability to have a baby. So I told him we should probably think about the vasectomy some more before making a decision. Aren't you kind? (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking as you were talking, I was just, I was just feeling my anxiety sort of like rising. And I thought, what a good place to just put in like, Hey, everyone take a deep breath. Like this is really hard to hear all this stuff that we're talking about. It's, it's just, it's not easy. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. And I got to say again, Pam, thank you for sharing your story, for being so honest, for being forthright and being willing to just let, let us know, like, Mm -hmm. these are the things that were happening for you because, because it's a rare peek into the, the workings of an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. And we, don't, we don't hear about this stuff very often at all. It's so taboo to even talk about. Right. So thank you for your strength. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, everyone. So keep breathing. And um, yeah, tell us what happened next. Like, So no vasectomy, I guess. <laughs> well, guess who got pregnant again? <laughs> oh, gosh. Me. Yeah. Uh, and... I just, I didn't want to go through another abortion so soon after the first one. And um, we had three sets of good friends who had been trying to conceive for a long time. And they were all kind of having the baby fever really bad. And, you know, I'm so nice. I thought, well, maybe I can have this baby and give it to one of these couples, whoever would be the best fit. So we scheduled an appointment to have an ultrasound to see, you know, is this a healthy baby? Hold, was it? All that stuff. And so we went to the appointment and, um, you know, it was, it was feeling really strongly like I didn't want to keep the baby. But while we were in the appointment, I was laying on the table and the lady was doing the ultrasound and we're watching the monitor and both myself and um, my ex or my guy at the time, we're looking at the monitor and we saw this like weird alien face. And it was kind of like moving like, like in this really freaky way, looking at us like, like it was some wise spirit or something. It was so trippy. And um, we asked the the nurse, is that our baby looking at us? And she said, no, he's this little bean up in the corner. And I had goosebumps. It was, it was a lot. And so when we left the appointment, 
it was we were both just still tripping out about that alien that we saw and decided, well, let's keep this baby. I think that's a message for us to keep it. And we should definitely move in together. So boundaries, people. (laughs) I had none. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was that was a lot. So, yeah, we did um, start making plans to move in together. We were going to keep that baby. And um, one day we had planned to get haircuts from our favorite guy together. And I was at home waiting for him to pick me up. And um, And so you're still pregnant at this point. Still pregnant. Yeah. With the alien baby. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sitting around waiting for him to pick me up for a haircut. Because we all know hair grows fast when you're pregnant. Yeah. Um, so he didn't show up and I was wondering where he was. He wasn't answering his phone. Um, nobody knew where he was. And a few hours later, I get a call from the sheriff and she's telling me, did you know your boyfriend's a registered sex offender? We have him at the jail and um, we have him here because he didn't report um, to the court when he moved to his new address and you're going to have to pay his bail. Would you want to talk to him? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Heck so yeah. now what? I was like, yeah, give me that phone. I have to know like what, what, what is going on? Well, that was something he forgot to tell you. <laughs> I don't mean thing. to make light of it. It's not funny, but I, you know, that he lied to you. Basically. Yeah. At this point, um, looking back, if I had gone down to the courthouse and pulled all of his records, I I wouldn't have stayed with him. Um, he was hiding a lot. Mm. So he basically, I talked to him on the phone and he said, oh, yeah, you know, this, this BS thing happened a long time ago, like 10 years ago or more. And I was working at this uh, music venue and this lady tried to stab me with a heroin needle and I pushed her away and um, she accused me of trying to rape her because she didn't want to face drug charges. That's the story I got. So a very fantastical story. Yeah. To kind of cup to cover Mm -hmm. for what was actually a real record of sexual Mm -hmm predation. Yes. And this poor lady I later discovered was so scared. She didn't even show up to her court date because she was so traumatized by what happened to her. And that is another, um, just another strategy, this lying and covering and making up stories. And, and, you know, if it sounds too crazy to be real, it probably is. Mm Mm-hmm. So then what? Well, of course, we moved in together after I bailed him out and he got his shoelaces back. Um, We moved in together and um, started making plans to get married. He was so excited about getting married that I thought, well, maybe my feelings of trepidation and... um, 
just my weariness would go away and I'd grow to love him because he wanted it so bad. I thought maybe if I just try hard to want this, things will be fine. And Pam, you know, in in self-defense classes, we talk about this all the time, this this way that our bodies are getting these messages Mm -hmm. and giving us messages like there's something wrong. This doesn't feel right. And we we oftentimes ignore them because they're not convenient or they don't match what we wish would be going on or what we think should be going on or what we think things should like look like. So it's, you know, once again, it's like you're, what you're describing is something that happens over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And just like you said, like my body knew and, um, a couple of weeks before our wedding, my body was like, oh, hell no, not this. <laughs> or this is not a good idea. And um, I felt really strongly I didn't want to move forward. But then I thought about all the people who had already bought their plane tickets and all the plans we'd made for the venues. And I told myself it was just cold feet. Right. And then you got married? Oh, yeah. We had a really fun wedding. Everybody was there. And when you're getting married, you're still pregnant? Yeah, I was quite pregnant. Yeah, I was very pregnant when we got married. Uh, The flyers I sent out had pictures of us as children, and there was actually a picture of him holding a shotgun. So I had that picture of him showing holding a shotgun as a young kid next to me, like, haha, it's a shotgun wedding. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so ironic. See, you're pretty funny. I know. Yeah, so the wedding was fun. And in the time leading up to the birth, he encouraged me to stop freelancing so I could just be a mom. Um, he was just telling me he wanted to take really good care of me and the baby. And um, he just wanted me not to have to worry about anything. And he would just take care of everything. But he wouldn't help me get health insurance coverage. Um, I was so scared being pregnant and um, worrying about, like, what if something went wrong with the birth? We went ahead and he did pay for midwives to help me do a home birth, which I I was excited about, but really nervous that something might go wrong. Right. Because if something should go wrong, Mm -hmm. not only is your health at risk and the baby's health at at risk, Mm -hmm. but it can get very expensive. And if you don't have health insurance, not pretty. That was the scariest part. Mm -hmm. So... Everything seemed to be going well until the baby arrived. It really triggered, it's like a flip uh, switch for him or switch flipped. Hmm. Can you tell us about that? What was that? What do you mean? And what was that like? What started happening? Mm-hmm. He, it seemed like he was getting jealous of me spending time taking care of the baby. Like, he would act kind of like jealous if I was nursing or like kind of like those were his, his breasts. Um, and what was a baby doing on them? Um, 
a lot of verbal abuse started, you know, if the house wasn't clean enough or if it was too clean, he'd, he'd be like, I didn't know I married such a Betty Crocker. He really wanted me to stop working, but I, I kept working because he kept promising to make like um, a household fund for me to be able to go to the grocery store and cover expenses that I might have just in my daily life. But that wasn't happening. So I kept freelancing and um, he was doing everything he could to make it difficult for me to work from home. Um, he wouldn't help pay with for childcare if I needed help with that. And also, um, he would promise to be home at a certain time to cover for me so I could have some focused time to work. Um, he just would say he'd be home at a certain time and come home hours after that. Other things that happened were he was still pressuring me for sex um, a lot. And I had a really traumatic tear that happened. My midwives called it an exotic tear because my kid basically flew out when we weren't looking wow. and just tore me. Um, so I had so many stitches and he was pressuring me for sex way before my stitches had time to heal. Wow. And so again, waking up to him being on me while I was sleeping and I started wearing the tightest jeans I had to bed. So maybe I'd wake up before that could happen. Um, this is also hard to listen to. I'm sorry. No, I, I mean, this is why we're, it is hard. Yes, it's hard to listen to. Okay, let's all take another deep breath. <laughs> <sighs> Golly. It's like, how far would I go to protect myself? And now I had a baby to watch out for too. Right. And you're just getting one boundary after another smackdown mm -hmm. and you're putting up with pain and assault and berating and the house is too clean. It's not clean enough, you know, mm -hmm. like all of it. Yeah. And if you I did. feel miserable. It was miserable. <sighs> if I was able to leave the house alone because he might have been watching the baby, my phone would ring constantly. He'd be asking, uh, when are you coming back? And complaining about the baby like just anything to get me back to the house and I, I started to feel really trapped right all that control mm -hmm. and all that you know power keeping power over you financially and with pressure and um, <sighs> um so things aren't going so well Mm -mm. and you've got this little baby that you need to take care of. And mm -hmm. what was the mitigating factor? Like what, what was the wake up call? Because I think pretty soon thereafter you realized you were unsafe and you had to get out. Yeah. Was there any one specific thing that happened or was it like a compilation of like, I am so miserable. I can't do this anymore. Or can you tell <laughs> us about that? It was so many things. Um, I think the biggest thing was this he's really great at storytelling and his stories started not to line up. And I just felt like I was being lied to, but I wasn't sure why it didn't make sense why he would lie about some things. I think some people would call it gaslighting. The vibe in the house got really tense. 
a lot of stuff just started showing up broken mysteriously. And he wouldn't say like, oh, I did that or sorry. Um, it was just things were broken everywhere. And this is including some of the baby's furniture, which scared the heck out of me. So scary. And I, I started to do my best not to leave the baby alone with him because I just, I wasn't sure, like, is this furniture getting broken while the baby's in it? Or, you know, it, it was so scary. And at the same time, it was getting really hard to leave the house. Um, he started to actually break things while I was in the house. If he was angry about something, he, it would be really loud. I could hear, I could hear it happening. Which is also very scary. It's yeah. threatening. Yeah. It's really frightening. That's, you know, it's violence. It's not right in front of you, but mm -hmm. it's being done so that it affects you so that you can hear it so that you know what the consequences could be. Mm -hmm. It was big stuff. It'd be like a door off the hinges or like the whole top of the stove would be busted somehow. Um, it was really scary. Um, something really embarrassing happened that just kind of felt like one of the final straws for me. I had a really great friend in California who was getting married and I was going to be a bridesmaid in her wedding. I had my tickets and was, you know, planning to take the baby down for some fun. And of course, right before my trip, my husband needed to borrow a huge chunk of money from me to cover his business expenses and said he'd pay me back before my trip. Well, he didn't pay me back. And the day before the trip, I was asking him, like, I need some cash so that I can cover the hotel and other expenses. And he said, sorry, I really don't have it. And so I had to call my friend and tell her I was really sorry. I wouldn't make it. It was so embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then one of the final straws, when I knew it was over, but I wasn't sure how to get out, is we had taken a trip with my family to um, northern Washington State. And before the trip happened, I had been so stressed out, half of my face swelled up so much that I couldn't even open my eye. And um, I had a doctor who had prescribed me some vitamins and Benadryl to try to make the swelling go down and get my immune system on track. Um, and I was feeling super duper nauseous. But anyways, on this trip, on a whim, we decided to go to Victoria, BC in Canada but I hadn't brought the baby's birth certificate and uh, border patrol detained us and searched all of our belongings because they thought that I might be trying to traffic the baby to sell it. <laughs> and I was like, look, I can, I can breastfeed. This is my baby. Right. And um, they found all the vitamins that I had brought in this like weird, <laughs> suspicious looking Ziploc baggie. Oh, and I know. And um, my parents, realized that we had been detained and my mom freaked out like on the other side they were already in Canada and she about broke down the door <laughs> to try to get to us go mom I know I love her <laughs> <laughs> I do too so you know we were we were getting detained and they were talking to my husband and they were asking him why do you have a state ID and not a driver's license and I was like, what? 
because this dude's driving everywhere all the time and had multiple vehicles. So you didn't know that he didn't have a driver's license. No. And, you know, he'd leave his wallet out. And I I had seen that thing so many times and never really looked at it. I felt like such a sucker. So for me, it was over. I just, I knew I couldn't trust him. And so we were detained for six hours on a ferry. I was already nauseous. With a baby. (laughs) With a baby. I was just like, take the baby. I'm so angry. I'm just going to roll up in a ball. (laughs) Yeah. And that was that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have enough money to move out on my own with a baby. So I was kind of waiting for my out. So how did you get out? Can you tell us what happened? How that how that went? I wasn't ready to leave when it happened. Um, one night he came home pretty drunk and he was just angry. I had made him dinner and was asking, you know, I was expecting him to come home and eat and he came home and started a fight about, like, why did I cook dinner for once in my life? <laughs> I was just like, you know, the baby was asleep upstairs. So things started to heat up so much in the kitchen. I went down to the basement where we had a garage that led out to the um, to the curb. And I just took the recycling out to kind of get some air. And um, as I was... As I was dragging the recycling out, he pushed the garage door to shut it to lock me out of the house. So I ran back into the basement and then he slammed the kitchen door and locked it. So I was like, either I could be locked out of the house altogether or locked in the basement. I just was so worried because it got really quiet and I couldn't hear what he was doing. And I was really worried about the baby. And, um, when I heard him come to the kitchen door and start screaming at me, he's basically screaming like, don't leave me. I love you. He was going crazy. And it had never been that, that wild in our house. Like this was escalated so much. It sounds like it had been heading in that direction, but mm-hmm. now it's just reached a new level. It just reached a new level. And I, I was kind of hoping like maybe a neighbor would hear all of the screaming and call the police or something, but nobody did. And so I'm on the stairwell, like just pleading for him, please let me in. And, you know, after a long time, he opened the kitchen door and I was able to get past him. I ran up the stairs to get the baby and I had grabbed my cell phone I was just frantically dialing friends to see if I could get anybody to come pick me up um, because I did not drive at the time. I didn't have a license myself. Um, nobody was answering. It was kind of late. And so I had the baby, my phone, and I was just thinking if I can get out of the house and go for a walk, this can all calm down, then maybe we'll be fine. And so... I was coming down the stairs and he picked up this disposable camera from our wedding that we hadn't processed the film out of. And he threw it really hard onto the floor. And so it was making this sound like, you know, those like really high beeping, beeping, yeah. beeping sounds. Yeah. It was just getting higher and higher and higher pitched. And it felt like exactly how it felt at that moment. Like it was so tense. Right. It's like a soundtrack to a movie 
Yeah, it was awful. I it's still, like increasing the anxiety even as I imagine it. Yeah, I still can't hear that sound without like my body going crazy. Yeah. So I've got my baby. I'm at the bottom of the stairs holding my phone. And he comes at me and puts his hands around my neck. And he's just holding them there. He's not squeezing, but he's touching me. He could squeeze. We stood like that for, I don't know, like, it felt like forever, but it was probably two minutes. Just, like, looking at each other. Oh, boy. Deep breath, everybody. Yeah. And um, I just knew at that moment I needed to get out or I was I was going to die, probably. I, I just felt it. And so... I took a big breath. He releases his hands and sits down in front of the door to get out. Like he's blocking the way. And I called 911 and asked them to please send people to help me get out. And so they were on the way that they were sending their domestic violence police. And we were waiting, and the first thing out of his mouth was, I can't believe you called them because I can't work tomorrow if I'm in jail. Wow. So the police arrived, and they moved him away from me. They put him in the kitchen, and they started asking me what I wanted to do. Like, did I want to press charges? And at the time, I was just thinking, I just need to get out of here for a night and sleep this off. And, you know, maybe I'll be back. I, I was expecting to come back, I think. And um, they were like, we really recommend that you leave. And so I went up and I got a diaper bag. I just had diapers and maybe clothes for a few days. But I just had $30 to my name. And my, my friend came and picked me up so I could stay with her. Right. So, so you, I mean, this is your home. This is where you live. This is your um, livelihood. This is your, the father of your child. Mm -hmm. This is who you just got married to. You know, you're leaving with a diaper or two and mm -hmm. some change basically. And yeah. so of course you're like, well, I'll be back because what else have you got? I had nowhere. I thought, yeah. Yeah. It was so but scary. You did. So mm -hmm. so you had friends who took you in or how did that go? Yes. I had friends who took me in. And I <laughs> I feel like I quickly became a burden, but <laughs> I've been doing my best to get on my feet. Yeah. Yeah. So did it surprise you that you didn't go back or did it start like I'd love to hear a a little bit about that dawning, like, yeah. oh, no, I can't go back. Or how was that? Um, I probably would have gone back, but I, my friends encouraged me to go to DHS to see if I could get um, some money. Like there's a thing called TANF, which is temporary aid for needy families that people escaping domestic violence can get. And they said, what if you go and try to get that and maybe they can help you get into an apartment or something. So honestly, at the time, I wasn't thinking that I was experiencing domestic violence because I hadn't been beaten. Um, but there were so many other things happening to me. But anyways, I was explaining to my caseworker my story and I was telling her, I'm not, 
I'm not a battered woman, you know, and I was watching, I was watching the blood drain out of her face <laughs> as I was wow. telling her what I'd been through. And she was like, lady, uh, <laughs> it's bad. She was like, you, <laughs> you're lucky to be alive. Um, but I think that's important for people to hear because you said something, if I can just interrupt you for just a second you said something really interesting to me the other day which is that you never considered calling a hotline uh -uh. can you that really surprised me can you talk about that i think i was in some really big denial like i i didn't consider myself to be abused i just knew that it didn't feel right and i wanted to leave but also I was feeling really embarrassed. I, I wasn't talking about what was happening to me to any of my friends because I, I just felt like I felt like a sucker. I felt really trapped. Um, I didn't I didn't see a way out. Right. There's that shame that we have talked about here many times, that shame that comes up that mm -hmm. somehow you're doing something that's wrong. Mm hmm which keeps you isolated and keeps you from talking with other others about it. And then I just heard you say the, the D word denial. Like yeah. it was like, you know, it couldn't be me. Uh, -uh. I also kind of felt like, well, I was actually, I was reading a lot of websites for wives that were like, basically had the attitude of like, you just need to try harder. Everything will get better. And so I was just thinking like, what can I do to make this better? I can fix this. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Right. Uh, but yeah, I didn't call because I didn't feel like I was being abused. Right. And so when did that, so was it like when you saw the, yeah. the blood draining <laughs> from that woman's face, were you like, oh, yeah, I was like, oh, okay. And so I talked with her for a long time and she said, I think we can get you that grant, but you are going to have to file a restraining order um, in order to make this work. And so I really didn't want to, but I did. I, I went through the process. The coolest thing about it was it was just me going all around town by myself with my baby in a sling. And they actually had childcare at the court, so I could drop him off in a nursery and knew, know that he'd be fine and do all the legal stuff on my own. Um, so I ended up getting a restraining order, and the judge who gave me my first one was telling me what she was hearing about what happened to me sounded so dangerous that she didn't feel like he should have any visitation that was not supervised. And so she set it up so, you know, he would not be able to visit with our kiddo unless it was supervised in a certain way. What was interesting is he didn't want to use his visitation at all. Like his only interest seemed to be from the time we talked, like I, I broke down and called him once is like he just wanted to see me. He didn't really care about the kid. It was so weird. Totally. Thank goodness for that judge, though. Yeah, and she also mandated that I go to domestic violence support group. And I, I did not want to go, being honest. <laughs> and was that because, like, why should I go? I, I just, don't need it. Or <laughs> that sounds like too much trouble or... Yeah, all those things. I felt like 
really embarrassed about what happened to me and I didn't want to talk about it in front of other people. And I, I just wanted to do like therapy by myself, which I did get, but uh, my first my first visit to the domestic violence support group was so intense. They had a lady there who was having like a psychotic break or something. She just she just lost it during the meeting. And I didn't want to go back, but I had to. And so I kept going back every week. And um, so many times that I actually made two really good friends there. And um we ended up teaming up later to kind of co-parent our kids together, which was the, probably the only reason I was able to really stay away. Just I had that mom support group. Like one of us would take all the kids on a weekend so the other ones could rest. It was really, really something else. It was so sweet. Wow. No kidding. Because there you are, a single mom all of a sudden. Yeah. So hard. So, so hard. Like not to mention all of the emotional and financial and fear and confusion and all, yeah. all. So that support was really important to you. What, mm-hmm. what do you feel as we are kind of heading into wrap up mode, mm-hmm. what else do you feel is important to share with, a, with, the listeners, anything that we haven't touched on yet that you think it would be important for people to know? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, reach out, find a support group that fits. Like if you go to one and it feels really weird on the first day, maybe go back another time just to see, is it that whack or not? And keep, keep looking until you find one that works because being able to talk about what's happening is huge. Um, and to be able to be around people who can talk freely about what they're going through is a really big deal. Um, the other thing I think is just the time that you're leaving is really dangerous. Like it's the most dangerous time. And, um, I think the only reason I knew that I needed to get out when I did was I had a really good friend as a kid whose mom, um, ended up being strangled many times until, finally her ex-husband killed her and it was strangulation and just um when he reached for my neck I knew oh I know how this ends so she had actually left um and then the the final strangulation happened like a few months after she had already left so it's just really dangerous when you're leaving right and in that vein, if you're ha- things are heating up at home, try to get close to a door to get out. And if you can stay out of the kitchen, that's really important because there's so many things in there that are dangerous. Right. Things like knives and stovetops and hard cabinets with sharp edges. <sighs> yes. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, one of my struggles legally over time was restraining orders. The problem with those is that you have to keep going back to court every year or every few years to renew them. And I actually had a a judge refuse to renew my restraining order, which was a big bummer. Yeah. Unexpected too, I would think. Unexpected. So 
if you're able to look into getting a stocking order, that could be a real lifesaver because it's federal, which means it covers every state. You know, a restraining order might just cover the state you're in. Would a stocking order also have to continue to be renewed or does it have a longer timeline? To my knowledge, you don't have to renew them. They're good and, okay. you know, forever. They don't expire. So I could be wrong, but lest I heard. Um, I think the other thing is be really prepared to advocate for yourself or your friend. Um, I just, my experiences with the police and the courts and other agencies, they weren't always looking out for my best interest. Um, a lot of the time I would kind of get the brush off or the run around and um, just be prepared to advocate really hard if you need to and also reach out for help. Let's see, some other things are, it, sadly, domestic violence shelters are always very full. And in some areas, unless you're considered um, kind of like a mortality risk or at risk of death, um, you may not be able to get in. So you may need to reach out to more rural areas, shelters in rural areas, or you may find yourself needing to get out of town a few hours in order to get into a shelter that's not full. So really reach out beyond the box, like mm -hmm. think creatively and think wide and far. Yeah. Even another state potentially, I, I mean, it's sad, but if you find yourself calling around and nobody can take you, just go, go further out and see what you can find. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. Can you talk about a go bag? Because you've talked yeah. about this with me before and you have some good tips and strategies about that. Yeah, I have good tips and strategies because I did not have one ready <laughs> when I left. <laughs> so in a go bag would be things like paperwork that you need, like your legal paperwork for yourself, like your social security card, stuff like that. Any medications you might not be able to survive without or would be hard to get um, in a pinch, your IDs and stuff, or clothes, things for your kids or whoever else is coming with you. And you will not want that go bag to be anywhere where you, your abuser could find it. Um, I have a friend who's abuser found hers in the trunk of her car and she almost lost her life because of that. Um, so stash it at a friend's house who that person won't ever be over there for any reason. Um, you know, hide it somewhere. I have one friend who her strategy was to rent kind of like a Harry Potter apartment. It was like a little closet under a stairwell that could lock from the inside where she put a bed and her little go bag and it was just like 25 bucks a month or something but her person would keep her up all night so she couldn't sleep so when he went to work she would go over there to sleep do you want to talk about stealth yeah if you are leaving try to find a person your abuser wouldn't think of as you being with like maybe it's somebody from work who you never talk with them about. Um, go there. Um, I know for me, when I hear a person is, is having some issues that sound like they could be domestic violence, I'll just let them know, hey, you can call me anytime. I can come pick you up. Or if you need a place to be, call me. And um, 
when you go over there to that place, make sure to turn your phone off and um, any any way that you could be tracked, like, um, you know, picking up a burner phone or looking for even a tracking device attached to your car, staying off social media. You have to be really careful about who you're telling where you're going because some people really have a hard time keeping secrets. That's a really good point. Or things like find my iPhone mm-hmm. to disable those things in your any other location services that you might share in common or that they might have a password to. Exactly. That could be a whole show right there. (sighs) It's so hard to hide right now. Like one of my frustrations is like trying to keep my personal address private because like just stupid things like the utility companies blow it. They put your, put your info right out there online. It is very challenging available for all to see yeah and things like um photos that are date and time and location stamped yeah 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 good point we'll have a whole show (laughs) yes digital trackery and trickery um tell me about being a friend i think being a good friend is when someone's telling you something that's going on for them to believe them that's the biggest thing because I know like for me I didn't feel like people would believe me necessarily because my abuser was so gregarious and fun and such a like (laughs) pillar of the community well you've talked about you you know you told us that if you hear someone who's talking and you have some concerns you're always the first one to be like you can always come to my house you can always call me i think you've also mentioned that you've given someone a key to your house to use in an emergency yeah if it's someone who's a close friend who i totally trust i will just give them a key to my house and let them know you can come over anytime i don't care if i'm home or not just let yourself in but please don't let anybody follow you over exactly like that that safety like I'm thinking about it, it goes both ways. Like if I want to be stealthy, I want to hide from someone. I'm going to try to pick someone my abuser doesn't know. I know mm-hmm. I've never mentioned them to them before. And I don't want to put that friend at risk Yes, by being followed, by mentioning their name, by, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. There's so much we can do for each other. But I think, you know, just in general is to talk about what's going on. We all need to talk more like we're doing right now. It's so important to to not, to help people feel like they're not alone. This happens so often. It happens so often. Oh, Pam, I talk about talking. Thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your vulnerability, sharing your awareness as it built, as you notice the red flags for sharing the scary parts and the hard parts and um, for your honesty, because you're right. When we talk about this stuff, it takes the mystery out. It takes the shame away. It takes the, you know, all of, all of the things that 
embarrass us or make us feel humiliated. It like takes that away when we talk with one another and we love one another no matter what and we support one another. Like this is where the healing can begin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you having this show is a really big deal and I'm so happy to be a part of it and I'm really proud of your work. Well, thank you. I'm really proud of your your bravery and your fortitude and your strength and your honesty and your clarity and your wisdom. So thank you on behalf of all of my listeners and on behalf of me who loves you so much. Thank you for coming and talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. It's affirmation time. This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool, and this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it, because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week? communicate with me, review this podcast, like all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.